if you're going to operate financial markets, you need to move at the speed of effectively light. Uh, and that's where Solana is pushing sort of that outer edge of what's potentially possible. Hey, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us reach more listeners and bring you more exciting content in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Associate with Avon Ventures. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the FCAT Crypto Brief. Parth, Jack, it's good to see you guys. I know Ryan's going to rejoin us next week. He's not here today, but uh, what have you guys been up to? Doing well. I just celebrated Halloween. How was your Halloween? It was great. We had a lot of kids come by. Uh, it's, it's good to see neighbors because where I live, they're kind of spread out. So this is a typical time of year where you actually do get to connect with people. But uh, Jack, what about you? Do you guys have any kids come by? No, I'm on like the side of the street that doesn't get trick-or-treaters which <laughs> pros and cons i guess but yeah my first house is like that jason you were you were telling us about the uh the special halloween episode uh on the simpsons i feel like people should know more about it oh my gosh yeah so uh so i was watching tv sunday and, and watching a football game and as the football game ended it turned into a special episode of the simpsons and i haven't watched the simpsons in a long time but for some reason, I left it on that channel and much to my delight, their little, I don't know if it's a vignette or exactly what it was, but probably about a 10 minute episode was all about blockchain and NFTs. And it was so funny because I couldn't believe that it was happening. And, uh, you know, so the backstory here really quick is that the Springfield Art Museum was going to be permanently closing and they were going to digitize all of the art and people could just pay to watch it or view it as an NFT. And Bart and Homer wound up trying to break in to digitize some of their own art first in order to use this digitizer. And then the other families were trying to get there. And, and so Bart wound up being the, the first human NFT because Homer hit the button and basically Bart disappeared and he became an NFT living in the, uh, on the blockchain. And the funny thing is the blockchain was actually represented as like a winter train, almost like uh, that movie Snowpiercer. So anyways, you know, Homer's like, oh my gosh, he's gone. And then he realized that he had a high value put on him and then he got all excited. So the episode went on to uh, have Marge Simpson also get digitized to get onto the blockchain. And where she landed was in like the low value NFT bucket. And she had to try and figure <laughs> out how to get to the front of the train where Bart was because he was valued very highly being the first human NFT. So uh, suffice to say, she figured out how to progress, which basically meant eliminating the competition in the NFT space. So there was this long episode around just getting to the front of the train and trying to trying to get them back to real life. And 
it was hilarious. So if you're in the blockchain space and you have a few minutes, it's it's pretty funny. Have you guys ever uh, heard of the like Simpsons time traveler uh, conspiracy theory? If you haven't, there's you know, various YouTube videos or whatnot. And uh, Matt Groening, the the writer, apparently just has incredible foresight into things that will end up mattering 10 years into the future. So I guess we'll have to see you know, whether or not people are getting transformed into NFTs 10 <laughs> years from now. So, so you guys will laugh because the way it ended was in a crypto winner and all the NFTs lost their value and the snow avalanche came and it hit the train and basically locked it up. So it's like, you know, very, very funny and creative people there. But uh, so anyways, Parth, what did, what did you try last week? <laughs> so I, it's going to be hard to follow that, but uh, I think it's going to be a pretty quick one. So uh, because I know we spent a lot of time on the compound liquidation bot in the last episode, so I want to keep it super simple and, and accessible. But uh, this week, I used a really simple website called CryptoMiso.com. And uh, CryptoMiso ranks your favorite blockchain, your favorite cryptocurrency based on the number of commits that a crypto project has on GitHub. So it's kind of a way to track some developer activity on each of these blockchains. And so uh, for those of you who don't know, a commit on GitHub is whenever you add new code to a project. So CryptoMiso gives you these really cool visualizations on the number of commits over time. And I think it's a really, it's a good fun metric to check if your favorite volatile project is uh, is seeing a huge dip in developer activity or not. Uh, so that's what I tried. Oh, that's great. So it's somewhat similar to uh, other products in the marketplace, but... Um... Interesting. So part, did you say this is static or is this updated in real time? Yeah. So it's typically updated every single day. And, uh, I do have to say that before you go into cryptomiso.com, inflating numbers on commits is also pretty gameable. So, so take all this information with a grain of salt, right? And, and just make sure that this is not the only tool to check developer activity. But I would have to say that I was pleasantly surprised seeing Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, Chainlink, even Solana uh, in the top 10 for developer activity. What I wasn't really expecting was some of these other smart contract platforms like Near or, or Avalanche, which do not have as much activity compared to the first four uh, blockchains that I mentioned in the last uh, 12 months. But again, this is just GitHub commits. And so it doesn't really give you a holistic profile, but I think it's a good uh, tool to check out. Yeah, it's interesting. I I know uh, there are others in the ecosystem that are looking at this developer data, but the hard thing is actually putting it into context, right? So you can get a count, but you don't know if it adding code, is it deleting code? Is it, to your point, you know, could people be artificially inflating the number of commits? It's really hard to contextualize that data, but many people do believe that there's some signal that can be learned from looking at that commit data. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk about Solana today uh, in the second half of the episode. But I was, I, I think Solana has a really strong uh, developer community, and I, I could see that in real time based on uh, their repo. All right. Well, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. Um, much of what the, this past week has been consumed by has been the the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. So uh, we have intentionally not commented too much regarding the SBF trial over the course of the past month because we we feel like you know there's plenty of people out there covering the the day to day details, but I think we can summarize and share some highlights today, and then uh, we'll move over to talk a little bit more about Solana. But what we saw on Friday was after about four hours of deliberation, 
the jury in this case unanimously found SBF guilty on seven counts related to wire, securities, commodities, money laundering, conspiracy, and fraud. So not a long time for the jury to be out. What we're seeing is that the, the sentencing here, if you were to experience the maximum penalty, would be over 100 years. But many people are uh, anticipating that they may be sentenced for multiple decades. We don't know. We don't want to. Um, we don't want to sort of try and project that. But we do know for a fact is that the sentencing is scheduled for March 28th of 2024. So you might ask, well, we're in November. Why would we have the sentencing four months later? I think that it's likely that there's allowing time for the defense to appeal the conviction. So, uh, but pretty quick. I don't know if you guys saw uh, social media light up with with news, but it was I I'd say coincidental that the guilty verdict fell exactly one year to the day after the story had broken that had really kicked off the entire FTX uh, bankruptcy. So um, backstory there is that I believe Coindesk had written a story that actually showed that Alameda Research or uh, had, may have had an issue with respect to um, balance sheets. Parth, do you recall exactly what was it mm-hmm. Alameda? Yeah, that's right. And I, I almost think that it's poetic that it's um... After the Coindesk article came out, it's been exactly a year, and uh, and now SPF has been found guilty. So so Coinbase so Coindesk came out with this news article. Things moved pretty quickly. You had Binance CEO CZ. Uh, he he decided that he would sell his stake, uh, and then SPF claimed that the assets were fine. But what I really like about this community is that the community immediately tested his claims, right? And that's actually the decentralized fact check. That, that that kind of did him in, right? So SPF could not continue to mint these fake funds on a centralized server as he did for his trading firm. In in crypto land, you can actually take your money out and really fact check if this person is is claiming that there were assets, if, if that's true or not. Yeah, I, I remember in real time last November, I mean, we were monitoring the wallet balances that FTX claimed you know, we're, here's our, you know, our Bitcoin that's on exchange. And you could see every single day it was trickling down and you could see what effectively was, you know, it's not a, obviously FTX, not a bank. So using the, the phrasing carefully, but a bank run effectively, uh, taking place in real time on chain transparently. And then ultimately you found out whether or not they had, you know, the assets underneath and they didn't. Yeah. I mean, once millions of people found that they couldn't move their money. To a to the to a decentralized blockchain, that's when the illusion kind of collapsed, and and so did his exchange, right? Yeah. So to sort of take that step back and say, what was it? Well, Alameda had been borrowing money from FTX, the exchange, through um, I'll call it an under collateralized arrangement, whereby Alameda basically had um, ready access to funds from the exchange that it could use to trade. So typically these funds would have been backed by collateral. And if the value of the collateral had, or the loan to value had um, gone below a certain threshold, they would have triggered an automatic liquidation and they, they didn't. But when, in this case, FTX had implemented code that prevented that automated liquidation. So Alameda could continue to borrow. But that balance sheet that was leaked actually showed that a big portion of the Alameda research balance sheet was tied up in the FTT token which was FTX's native token. So you start to see like, okay, people saw that and said, okay, maybe this balance sheet isn't as strong as we thought. You saw some margin calls, you saw questions about 
uh, questions, as you said, Parth, posed by others in the industry. And then you started to see people pulling money out of FTX. All the while, SBF was going out and trying to raise additional funds to plug the hole in the balance sheet. We later came to realize that that hole in the balance sheet was about $8 billion. So people often ask, well, what happened to the $8 billion? And it was reported that some of it was spent on the lavish lifestyle that SBF and, and the close associates were living. Uh, some of that money clearly went to Alameda in terms of uh, loans. And Alameda didn't trade very well. So then it was continuing to try and trade and, and come back into uh, a position where it would not be underwater. But some of that money was also spent on donations and uh, celebrity endorsements, corporate endorsements, et cetera. So it's kind of interesting to, to take a look and say, okay, how does $8 billion go missing? And this is where things really started to, to unwind. And it was pretty quick. I think it was November 11th, Jack, I think you hold me honest here. November 11th of 2022, when, uh, when FTX filed for bankruptcy, is that right? Yep. So I, I was doing a little bit of uh, research over the weekend and saying, okay, there has been lots of reporting about insiders at FTX and Alameda testifying and cooperating with the prosecution because they themselves had pled guilty to a number of different fraud and conspiracy charges. But one of those uh, interesting angles is that Caroline Ellison, who had been the Alameda CEO, had been uh, romantically linked with SBF. But she herself came out as one of the, the most important witnesses for the prosecution. And she testified that she had distributed uh, multiple dishonest balance sheets to lenders. So in some ways, you, you look and say, okay, the Alameda's request for loans ended up pulling in the FTX uh, customer funds. But you also saw um, the design engineer of FTX, Nishad Singh, pleading guilty and acknowledging that he was the person that implemented that custom code that prevented Alameda from being subject to that automated liquidation. And uh, Nishad reportedly testified that FTX spent more than a billion dollars on those celebrity and corporate sponsorships. So inside testimony, very, very critical. And also Gary Wang, who was a co-founder, talked about the fact that you know they gave money to Alameda. Uh, they had a mixture of bad crypto bets and ad advertising payouts, venture investments, political donations, and, and personal perks for uh, SBF and other top brass at FTX yeah. and Alameda. So pretty pretty damning uh, evidence from this. I, I would say the TLDR for me would be that a lot of the SBF's misconduct is not related to cryptocurrency or blockchain, like, like falsifying uh, his firm Alameda's finances or spending people's money without their permission. And so it did take our industry a few years back. It took a reputational hit in Washington for sure. Um, so, but I, I think moving forward, uh, what's next, right? So one thing which I know for a fact, and I, that actually ties in really well with the Solana story is that, uh, FTX, which is the, uh, which is now a bankrupt company, they want to sell the, their assets, right? And a big position happens to be Solana. And I know we have seen some activity around Solana. So, uh, Jack, would you? Do you want to do the honors of uh, talking about Solana? Yeah, I think we highlighted it a few weeks ago, um, but the FTX estate is in the process of working with Galaxy to to start liquidating the assets that they have on their balance sheet. And the largest liquid token that they do hold is over a billion dollars worth of the Solana sole token. Um, 
But despite that, and despite that news that we know that, you know, some of that liquidation is, is starting to happen. And we've seen some tokens slowly but surely moving uh, from from wallets to exchanges in, in little increments of you know, 50, 100 million dollars uh, over over recent weeks. Um, but despite that, the price of Seoul is up over the past 30 days. And I think it's a good opportunity to maybe highlight some of the things that are going on around the Solana ecosystem. Um, so they just, uh, Solana as a community just had their breakpoint conference, which is like a, an annual conference, um, you know, dot, sort of highlight amongst developers what's being worked on, uh, what some of the upcoming goals are, et cetera. You know, your prototypical crypto conference, but focused on the Solana network. And one of the big announcements that took place was uh, the official testnet launch of a new validator client that's been sort of long awaited called Fire Dancer. And this is sort of one of the, the big uh, pieces of news that I think is creating interest uh, or, or hype at the moment uh, around Solana. And what it is, is it's a, a new validator client that was designed by Jump Crypto. Uh, last summer, it was originally announced that they were going to start working on it. Uh, Jump Crypto, of course, being one of the largest uh, trading entities and they were you know, sort of heavily involved in the Solana ecosystem prior. One of the big knocks on Solana has been they make this trade-off of centralization to a certain degree, but that allows for increased scalability on the base layer. And so in some respects, Solana becomes you know, more performant and can work at a speed that computers are, are sort of pushing itself to the max towards the edge of what computers can make possible. But when you try to do this amongst a distributed consensus, you can you can lead yourself to uh, maybe going too far over the edge in terms of speed and performance. And we saw periods of a uh, lack of reliability, uh, some, some outages historically um, over prior years. And so this new client type is an attempt to sort of begin to diversify the network's validator types um, as well as increase uh, certain other aspects of the network. For instance, uh, Fire Dancer was able in in uh, tests prior was able to process up to 1.2 million transactions per second in a demo. Uh, that that leads some to believe that there could be improvements in performance and scalability for the network. But I think overall the push is another validator client type which can increase the reliability of the network potentially um, and continue to allow Solana as a network to try to operate at sort of the, the cutting edge of how fast you know distributed computers will allow them to. Yeah. So maybe if you if you kind of go back in time, you spoke about how Solana has made design decisions to focus more on high performance, low latency and not decentralization. So in the early days of Solana in 2019, to run a Solana validator node, it was around $1,100 a month. And then it dropped to $800 a month. And now it's about $320, $350 a month to run a Solana node. So that tells you that you don't, I mean, $350 a month is obviously not super accessible. And that's why only a few entities run the Solana validator node. And also it's not like Ethereum where you are staking 32 ETH that you own, right? This is just the cost of using a Solana box for validation. Now you spoke about client diversity on Ethereum uh, and Solana. And on Ethereum, you have one software which is run by 43% of the validators. If that goes down, 
you still have the next one which has around 33% uh, coverage. And even if that goes down, you still have those smaller clients which are uh, in the five to 10% range where you have a lot of these validators uh, which are still running Ethereum, right? So I guess the point is that because you have client diversity, you have something called as liveness, which means that Ethereum rarely uh, would, would go down. Now, uh, for Solana, until like two weeks ago, there was just one client, right? And so when that fails, it affects your liveness and safety and or your blo blockchain malfunctions. So Fire Dancer definitely makes it more resilient. But the other point that I want to make, the other benefit is that Fire Dancer is also super efficient. So the usage of your of using your box actually comes goes down and the cost associated with it also goes down. So hypothetically, if Fire Dancer is super efficient, the price of hosting a Solana node can go down by 20%. And so it's it's kind of, it's both ways. It's A, client diversity, but also hosting a, a Solana node, it gets cheaper. If you have better performance, but the same data streaming through it, then it becomes cheaper to operate, right? Yeah, exactly. The only place which I think is kind of dubious or, or maybe interesting is that Fire Dancer is being built by by a trading company, right? <laughs> Which is Jump Capital. Now, trading companies are never uh, altruistic entities, right? Their job is to maximize profit, and so they kind of have to work in a in a Machiavellian way. Uh, so I'm not sure how users or validators feel about the fact that the new the new efficient software that they're all going to be using was invented by a trading company, because I'm sure. The trading company has to have some clear incentives. Jack, I, I don't know if you have any comments around this. No, I think it's a great point. Uh, I mean, as far as I understand, Jump obviously is a, a large shareholder and community member uh, alongside Solana or with respect to Solana and the network. But yeah, there's there's clearly everybody has their own incentive mechanism. And I think it's worth you know being aware of especially at the, the very beginnings of the testnet launch uh, of the new validator client. So I was going to say, is it, well, first I was going to question, is Solana actually out of beta? Because for the longest time I kept hearing Solana is in beta. It's in beta. Did it ever come out of beta? I, I think they have like really, they, they have transitioned into something like they, they don't put it out there now. Like it doesn't say Solana beta anymore, but, uh, but I could be wrong. Like it's, you know how like you don't make a full, fledged launch party out of something. I think that's the strategy that they went with. Gotcha. I mean, it's it's an arbitrary term in crypto, right? I mean, a lot of applications and protocols will say they're in beta, but then if they have a billion dollars streaming through it and people using it, like what, you know, what constitutes beta versus mainnet? It's just when developers arbitrarily say this is in a mature state, but that's- Jason, let me put it this way. Cause I, I think any any sort of enterprise company would not use any sort of beta software, but you have Visa uh, or, or Visa or MasterCard, and then you have Shopify using Solana. So that kind of puts it in a weird position. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to be kind of tongue in cheek, right? Because Solana had shut down a few different times in the past because the, the different validators could not agree on the slot height. So they had to reconnect in order to uh, essentially make sure they were at the same starting point when they rebooted the app, uh, rebooted the, the chain, so to speak. So it, it was a bit of a facetious question, but I, I do think you're right. In some ways, I, I think it's almost like, excuse me, we're not quite fully mature yet or something might go wrong. 
uh, it, it probably won't, but it could. So it's that tr attempt to manage an expectation is, is how I personally interpreted it. But I, I do think about it and you ask what incentive does uh, somebody have to contribute to the, the network, whether it's a validator or the software running a client. I think that you're right. They're there to make money. They, they've invested in this ecosystem. They'd like to see this ecosystem uh, realize some of its potential because it was always billed as being extremely high throughput. So in order to have, as we think about the blockchain trilemma, high throughput likely means less decentralization. Yeah. So when you look at the validator count, that's one thing. I also thought I had read something some probably a year, year and a half back, excuse me, that they were going to um, potentially allow those who had higher amounts of soul stake to the validator to have a higher pri uh, priority in terms of determining block transaction inclusion. So, or so higher uh, probability of validating blocks. Yeah, may maybe it's that, but I think like one incentive that Jump Capital might have, which is to go long on on building a, a solid Solana system, is that Solana is obviously looking forward to like low latency, ultra fast transactions, typically for trading platforms or trading companies such as Jump. And so, typically, when you connect to Nasdaq for a high performance connection, you have to pay them a lot. They keep track of your data, you get you get access to your data, but then you have to pay to get your data back. Yeah. And so so I think they're sort of thinking about how they could move that. That's what I heard from uh, folks in uh, in jump on, on a podcast. But the idea is that they would hope that a lot of these trading platforms use uh, Solana as the underlying technology. And I mean, that's what it was originally pitched as right, right. It was like, hey, you know, distributed, not necessarily NASDAQ, but in theory, like if you're going to operate financial markets, you need to move at the speed of effectively light. Yep. Uh, and that's where Solana is pushing sort of that outer edge of what's potentially possible. So you sort of bring it back to what we were talking earlier about FTX and this bankruptcy. You know, one of the things I, I, I think about, and we didn't really say is that that the current CEO of FTX is a gentleman, John Ray, and he had also been the person who stepped in to help get Enron through its bankruptcy, you know, 20 or so years, maybe 22 years ago, something of that effect. He'd said he'd never seen such bad corporate governance or bad risk control. So you sort of come back to it and say, okay, if you're going to, for a blockchain, if you're going to have that type of throughput, you're trying to attract that type of capital, you're going to have to have good controls in place. You're going to have to have good governance in place. So I, I think that'll be something to watch over time is how does Solana evolve in terms of governance and uh, maintain its liveness and, and support that high throughput that it's seeking? Yeah, it does have a good, solid uh, developer community, though. Uh, and I feel like community strength really grows when you are bound by trauma, right? And so, or or by just like really solid underlying technology. And so, so I think the way Solana is trying to position is also not to be the Ethereum killer, but it wants to host a different set of applications which require process speed to be super fast. Yep, one, one additional tie-in, sorry, it's not related to that point, uh, Parth, but between FTX and Solana is, I believe, according to the filing that we saw that was approved by the judge in, in the Delaware court, Bitcoin and ETH could be hedged 
before the spot was actually sold. But Solana, like the Solana derivatives market's not liquid enough or mature enough to be able to hedge those positions. And so to the degree that, you know, Solana stays up at these prices, uh, or, you know, you know, who knows, obviously, but if it, you know, trends higher, that means that the FTX recovery rate continues to look better and better. Um, so it kind of has a roundabout way of, you know, benefiting or make further helping make whole, you know, some of those creditors that are, you know, currently hoping that their claims are are worth some semblance of what they were before. And, and Jack, I'm, I'm glad you brought it back to that. And like you said, nobody knows on price. There's no indication that it would go up or down. We, we don't want to speculate on that. But from the creditor perspective, you know, I think those of us in the industry who've been around for a while, and certainly those who are just looking at this objectively, would like to see that those creditors are um, compensated to the extent that they can be so that they can, if not be made whole, at least be less um, less impaired than they currently are, where they have no access to their funds. Yeah. So it has this weird way of, uh, you know, to some degree helping the industry because there's so much Solana held by FTX and there's so many creditors. So like to the degree that they're, they haven't liquidated at all, which there's no indication that they have, they're just slowly doing it. Um, as Solana stays at these elevated Aren't levels. they limited to a hundred thousand dollars worth of each token per week after initially, I think it was 50,000. hundred million. Oh, excuse, excuse me. I said thousand, excuse me. You're right. Million, excuse me. Yeah, I believe that's right. So they've been slowly moving some of those soul tokens and I'm not sure what percentage of those are vested versus unvested for those Solana tokens. I don't know if all of them are, are liquid or not, but Again, a lot of speculation involved in that, like not meant to mean that the soul token's going anywhere or that it somehow saves crypto by it going up. That's not at all what we're saying. It's just there's a weird relationship because all these people that held non-soul tokens actually technically on the back end, FTX and Alameda were holding Solana and these other ecosystem tokens. And so to the degree that they're worth more than they were before, it kind of ends up helping them in a weird way. So sort of to recap, we're seeing developer growth around the Solana community. There is um, some anticipation that some of the supply that had been locked up in the bankruptcy of FTX will will reemerge into uh, liquid markets. And uh, again, it, that that developer community activity could be viewed as a um, as a commitment to trying to bring this blockchain to realize some of its uh, expected potential. Great. Well, I, I think we're at time. I want to say thanks again. Um, look forward to catching up with you guys later on. Great. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any Fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. 
Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would, or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero four zero one five six.